recap of what we did last week. Uh, we started talking about the Shema. The Shema is a very important prayer in Jewish life uh, because we're told to say the Shema every day multiple times. Uh, the Shema is the first thing we teach our kids. It's the last thing the Jew says before they die. Uh, the Shema is, uh, the Talmud tells us that the Shema incorporates all of the Ten Commandments within it, the very first paragraph. And the idea being where when we say the Shema, we kind of, in our heads, review all the core principles of Judaism. And in fact, the very first verse of the Shema, the first six words of the Shema, essentially incorporate everything about Judaism. How so? Pretty dramatic, six words. You could distill it all down to that. How do you have all of Judaism in six words? Seems like it's... uh, uh, it's a, you know, it's a really, really shorthand way to remember it all. You know, interestingly, when uh, when the Gentile came to Rabbi Akiva and says, "Teach me all of Torah on one leg," he told him something else. Perhaps he could have told him this: uh, mm-hmm. uh, all of Judaism is really incorporated in the first word of the Shema. Uh, and the answer, by the way, to that question—it's a good question. I just thought of it right now. And the answer: uh, the answer is that what Rabbi Akiva told him was the end result. Love your neighbor. And that is, love, well, that, we, precisely what he, sorry, it wasn't Rabbi Kiva, it was Hillel. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Yeah, yeah, he cited Hillel. Right. Uh, Hillel came afterwards. Hillel came much afterwards. Hillel was one who said that this is a major principle in Judaism. So Hillel, the guy came to Hillel and said, uh, how to teach me all Torah on, on one leg. So he told him, okay, you know what? That that you don't like, don't do to others. Which is a play in words on the idea of love thy neighbor. Love thy fellow as, as, as yourself. Uh, now, why would he not tell him Shema Yisrael Hashem 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 Hashem, according to our thesis that we established last week, that this first verse incorporates the entire Torah? Now, how does that do that? It does it because the first verse incorporates the first two of the Ten Commandments. First commandment is believe in God, right? That's Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu, right? God is our, you know, God, uh, um, Hashem is our God. And then Hashem Echad, Hashem is one, there's nothing else, and that is the second commandment of thou shalt not have any other Power. Don't assign, don't assign anything else, any power aside from God. And those two, the first two Ten Commandments, which, by the way, the only ones we got from God, God Himself, not via Moses. Uh, thus, uh, when we say, uh, and famously in, in Deuteronomy, Torah Sivalanu Moshe. Anyone familiar with that verse? Torah Sivalanu Moshe. Morashak Hilak Yaakov. Have you heard that verse before? Okay, very good. So Moshe taught us Torah. The gematria of the word Torah. Anyone knows what the gematria? Everyone knows what the gematria is, right? Mm-hmm. Six eleven. Very good. Moshe taught us Torah. Moshe taught us six eleven, right? Because the other two, God taught us. Nice, right? Because the first two, of the Ten Commandments, God te- God ta- taught us Himself. And we mentioned last week that the reason why God had to teach us to f- tell us the first two of the Ten Commandments was because God teaches all, all the entire Torah and incorporating in the entire Torah uh, uh, are two major core elements. And that's, number one, everything, every positive mitzvah is under the heading of doing what God told you to do because God told you to do it. And because God exists. That's the first of the Ten Commandments. And every one of the 600, uh, 365 negative commandments, don't do something, is because when you're doing something, you're going against God. And that's the second commandment, don't go against God. And the Shema is, incorporates the two of the Ten Commandments, thus the Shema really incorporates all of Judaism. Now, I would, I would venture to say here that while indeed the theory 
the theory of Judaism is incorporated in the first of the Ten Commandments, I would say the practice, how it would look once someone is done with that, it would look that that, that you dislike, don't do to others. So like the idea of theory versus application. Uh, but either way, uh, this alone, just the statement, the mere statement that we're saying here, that it's possible that all of the core precepts of Judaism, not only that, really all the subsets, all, everything, everything about Judaism is incorporated in the first, of the, uh, first six words of the Shema would make us realize its importance. And then when we find uh, statements like Maimonides writes that we, we should really spend years and years and years dwelling upon it. What is right. the gematria of the first six letters of the Shema? I don't know. It's a good question. Um, you want me to do it right now? Stop right now and <laughs> pull up the calculator. <laughs> um, well, the Shema is 410. Yisrael is, uh, I don't know, 531. Uh, Yisrael, 541. Okay, but we're doing gematria now. We keep, we're, 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 what is you know, it? 541 plus 410, that's the first two. That's what we wrote. Um, either way, uh, that's yeah. So 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 it's it's um, it's very important for us to spend some time on the Shema. Um, that's essentially what we spoke about last week. Uh, this week we're going to try to finish the entire thing. So what we have over here is uh, after we say the Shema, we say words in an undertone. What are these words? Baruch Shem Blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom for all eternity. Now, where do those words come from? Anyone knows where those words come from? Where in the Torah are they written? Which one? The, the words that we say in the undertone. Baruch Hashem for Mokhot And why do we say them in, in the undertone? The angels. Except on Yom Kippur. Because we don't want the angels to say their things. Ooh, you're nice. So these words actually do not appear in the written Torah. However, the source for it is, is in two different places. Um... Uh, either it's possible that it came from Jacob. And the Midrash says that when Jacob was about to die, so he called over his kids and he, and, and he was all worried, what's going to be with all his kids? And they told him, Shema Yisrael. And we know Jacob had another name. It wasn't just Jacob, it was also Israel. Israel. So here, Yisrael, here, Israel. Hashem and Hashem as if they all testified to the fact that they believe in God totally. Hashem Echad, Hashem is one. And then he was happy and as a... Uh, uh, I guess his expression of his happiness, he said, Baruch Shem That's what the Midrash says. Thus, we incorporate that as well. That's one source. The other source the Midrash brings is that, uh, is that when Moshe goes up to the heavens and he's hanging out with angels, which in itself is a really dramatic, you know, kind of, or, or perplexing narrative. How is Moses hanging out with angels? How, how does Moses go up there? We read a few weeks of the Parsha. Moses goes up and he doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. How does he not die? You explained it in one class previously. I did? Yes. Some of my repeating content, is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> <laughs> Some people were not there. No, no, no. We should know. That's what you're like. It's interesting one. Huh? More a commentary on that we should have it ready to talk about. Well, the, he, he had uh, you know, the spiritual side and the body side, and then you balance the two of them. Okay, good, good. Um, either way, Moshe hears the angel saying it, and he kind of brings it down, which is, I'm saying, that in itself, that, that whole episode is pretty, it's pretty interesting. It's like as if there's this angelic prayer 
that the angels kind of came up with on their own, or is it part of Torah? Is it something extra? And then we say it in another tongue because we don't want to arouse the uh, the envy of the angels. Uh, so we say it in an undertone, well, they won't hear it. Because we say it in an undertone? Really? Yeah. They're like, oh, we went under the radar. We, said, we did it only at like two and a half decibels. You know, that's below what they're, you know. And then in Yom Kippur, we say it out loud because Yom Kippur, we're compared to angels. And that's why we don't eat and drink in Yom Kippur either. And we, uh, we wear the white and we, you know, we have all the purity. And we, you know, we're like the angels and as if our soul is totally dominant in Yom Kippur. And then, there, then we have the license and the liberty to scream it out loud and we're not worried about the angels. The whole, the whole thing is a little bit, I think, worthy of investigation. Like, what is actually going on? But either way, this is uh, the, what we say at, right after the Shema. And by the way, to tell you guys another uh, important uh, role that these words play, Baruch Sheikh Ramotol Lava Ed, when someone says, oh, yeah, yeah, nice. Um, when someone says, um, something, uh, well, when someone gets, says God's name in vain, uh, by mistake, obviously, we don't say God's name in vain, um, then they, right afterwards, they should say, they, um, they kind of could fix it right away by saying right afterwards, Interesting. Okay, so let's, let's start the Vyahafta. Let's, 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 so allow me. Uh huh. I don't know. The name of the right, I'm saying the, the idea of names of God. That's a big topic you want to open here. Um, yeah, okay. Forever and ever. I'm going to take it at. Uh, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I don't, I, yeah. it's a good question. Names and and, and I'm saying this. Your question could extend a little bit further. What I'm pointing out here is that. The whole idea of assigning names to God is a bizarre practice. And there's the name that we don't say and what the names refer to. And there's multiple names. And God tells Moses, oh, I, I, I prophesied, or Abraham prophesied, and I only came to him with this name, but I came to you with that name. And then there's the 42-letter name of God and the 72-letter name of God. The whole thing is a little bit of a mystery. Yeah, what I mean is, is, is it in Maybe, maybe, maybe that's what it means. Um, I, 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 I would venture to say that probably it's a little bit more esoteric than that, but maybe, maybe probably that's a simple, you know, there's ways, there's a simple and there's deeper meanings to it. It's worthy of investigation. Mm-hmm. Either way, let's get into the next verse. Right, you don't need the word Shem, right? No, you can say, bless me, his glorious kingdom. Yeah, the name of his name kingdom. Of his it's, yeah, it's a little bit of, of a mysterious prayer, what exactly we're referring to. Okay, so let's start the Vahafta. Now, we'll find like a very kind of harsh transition, I feel. Um, because when we talk about the first word, the words of the Shema, it's talking about this relationship we have with God, and uh, we're accepting upon Him, so to speak, as, as our King, and we're submitting ourselves to Him. And like we said last week, that's not an easy thing at all. And if you think, if you think it's easy, then you're not doing it right. Because if it's, if it's easy, you're not really uh, compromising on your individuality on your independence. Uh, but it's very much a, a theoretical, I would say. It's not very practical, or not very, or it's very maybe intellectual, but not very emotional. And then we talk about, we shall love Hashem, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your resources. Suddenly, we're talking about love. So what I, w- what I would say, at least um, off the bat, is 
that what it's describing in verse number one of the Shema, it's describing a process that could, the very next step of that is, is emotion. It means how deep are we integrating this idea into our lives? I think that we have a tendency to make it very much an idea that's kind of out there that we maybe believe in, maybe we don't believe in, but either way, it's an idea. It's relegated to the realm of theory. When we talk about emotion, that's really who we are. You know, that's, that really was what mobilizes us and galvanizes us. And who we really are is what we feel. And what the Torah is telling us is that this idea of God, this God idea, if you will, vis-a-vis in respect to us accepting this, his dominion over us, the next step right after that is that we, we love God. And we love God how much? With all our resources, with all our heart, with all our soul. But this is even stranger because it says you shall love. So you, it, like, it commands you to have to love. love God. Yeah. Well, how do you love God? Yourself. Yeah. There's a whole discussion about how can you be forced to love somebody. It's not somebody, but... Some entity. Yeah, some entity. Well, okay. How do you love God? And by the way, this is a mistra- mistranslation. With all um, your heart? With all your heart. The real words are with all your hearts. Yes. Mm-hmm. But the second one is with all your heart. And the second huh? one is uh, heart. The second is in singular. With your soul. Yeah. The whole na- nafshecha. Right. Is it, is it souls? Is it no, it's not souls. It's just, it's just hearts and soul. And with all your resources. Now, I want to I analyze no, no. this yeah. verse this verse very critically. So we have to love God. So you said, you know, right off the bat, uh, Diego, that there's a problem. How we love God. Well, one is how you, how you love God. Yeah. And then there's the degree and the second of one is how somebody much... telling you, love your brother. How do you Nobody compel force you? Yeah. How do you compel someone to have an emotion? That's that's the first question. The second one is, and this, I mean, there are two. One is, how do you love God? How, how is it expressed? How can you force somebody to love God? It means, how do you attain it, or how do you express well, it? Well, you you know how to you know love well, somebody, yes. a person, right? How you, I mean, but loving. Well, we were told we have to fear God as well. There's there's in fact one verse a few weeks ago in the parsha we read that you have to love God and fear God. The same verse. Which is this, you know, seems to be even contradictory modes of relationship. It's not, it's not that strange, right? We all fear our wives. <laughs> we don't. We love Who, talk for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, 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 yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. And in fact, by the way... Um, the Torah itself, when it talks about loving parents or honoring parents and fearing parents, uh, it does in the same verse talk, talk, equate that to God. And the Talmud does makes a big deal about it. it. Says, "Well, there's three partners in man, father, mother, and God, and thus, you know, when you when you uh, ignore one, you're ignoring the other one as well. So it does does do that together. We have to fear fear our parents like we fear God, or honor our parents like we would honor God. Very very interesting." Uh, but either way, so let, 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 let's just try to do some basics here. So what the Talmud points out here, we love God with all our hearts. What does that mean? With our good and our bad hearts. I.e., our yetzer tov and yetzer ra. Our good inclination and evil inclination. We have to love God with our good inclination. That makes a lot of sense. We have to love God with our evil inclination. Isn't the whole purpose of the evil inclination to make us not love God or not do what God wants or not follow the path of the Torah? But that's our goal, to give to you. Then we wouldn't to fear make it. Correct. 
so that the okay so how does that work well by overcoming the the issue of sin or whatever that leads to that so you're saying if you give your yetzirah such a beat down you'll beat him into submission is that what you're saying no no no, no. you make you, you make everything that you do to be for God right so even you overcome the sin Okay. And by overcoming it, it's not a beat down, you're overcoming that, so therefore you become stronger in that. So you're not loving God with your Yetzirah, rather, in the role of the Yetzirah plays, you love God by not listening to it. Yeah. I think it's a very simple understanding. You direct it. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, like in one of the things I've been studying where they ask, oh, take away our mystery So channel it. Channel it toward God. So these are two fantastic answers. Um, either that we say that, yeah, you love God, mean, doesn't mean that you love God with your evil inclination. It means um, with the battles that you have with the inclination, you'll demonstrate your love for God by, by resisting. Or that there is actually a way, what Ben's saying, that there's actually a way to take the Yetzirah and make that force Right? Use that force for good. So, like for example, if somebody gets angry, is angry a good thing or a bad thing? A bad thing. It's a bad thing. You would say, uh, you think, right? There's, there's righteous anger. Okay. So well, there's one. Against sin, if yeah. somebody's sinning, you have to have a righteous anger towards that sin. Right. So you're saying you're harnessing, or or uh, you're harnessing, or directing, or channeling something that could potentially be bad. As most oftentimes linked with the Yetzirah, and you're going to do it for your purpose. Like if you right. hate, I don't know, evil. Right? If you if you hate uh, injustice and you direct your anger and your wrath at injustice, well, I don't recall if it's a midrash or Pirkei Avot. Perhaps the anger is equivalent to lack of faith of God. Yeah. Well, the Talmud says that whoever does whoever is, gets angry is as if they worship idolatry. Oh. Well, kind of like Batman. Hmm. Yeah. Or, well, I, I never watched any Batman movies, but. Um, or what? They never watched that. No, or just that he, he equated to Batman. Why, why is that? Because Batman uses. He tries to do good, right? He tries to. Like, he's a superhero. Well, but does he use bad? Like he uses, I guess, violence against bad people. Violence is probably on its own in a vacuum is bad. Yeah. So that would be a good example. There's a Gemara, a crazy Gemara, that says that. Uh, it's Gemara Yoma, the book that talks about Yom Kippur. The Gemara says that any Talmud Chacham, any Torah scholar that does not that does not avenge <laughs> any Torah scholar that does not avenge like a snake is not a Torah scholar. <laughs> if you're a Torah scholar but you don't avenge, you have no uh, you know you don't take revenge like a snake, you're not a Torah scholar. What does that mean? Revenge is one of the one of the worst themes. The answer is because in its proper context, it's actually a very good thing. And thus every uh, every negative quality that we have in its proper context may be a mitzvah. Uh, for example, there's like a, a Zohar, the only Zohar that I know. There's only one. There's only one that I know. Um, the Zohar says that if people did not have 
uh, a sexual desire, they would have no fun studying Torah. Those two things don't seem to have much overlap. But the answer is, is that if you walk into a yeshiva, you see a lot of like unbridled passion. And at the core, that passion can be directed in several different ways. And if you actually isolate the passion and not in how it's being applied, that may look very much like the same sexual passion that people have. And thus, in directed towards Torah, well, that gives the, to- the, the Torah study that tremendous appeal. So perhaps, you know, if we were talking about our tackling our temptation, that was one of our, was on our docket, uh, to talk about tackling, tackling temptation, well, how do you tackle temptation? Well, maybe there's a few different ways to do it. There's the way, that, the way you describe it, to give it a beatdown and just beat it into submission or ridicule it, so to speak. And there's a Gemara that talks about how uh, the great the great tzaddikim, they would ridicule and belittle and, and kind of fight it head, you know, head on. And then there's this other discussion of taking it and using it for good. And I think I might have mentioned this in previous, I did mention this in a previous class, that the Talmud says that when someone has the Yetzirah, when someone has the evil inclination coming after it, you drag it to the house of study. You remember we mentioned that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we thought you, know, you shouldn't drag it, you should just abandon it and run away. Well, no, you drag it by channeling it. Uh, additionally, I want to share with you guys another insight, perhaps that this is uh, another, another another way to understand it. And that is, uh, we find in the Talmud, back to the Talmud, this is in the book of Baba Basra. Baba Basra is the book that deals primarily with laws of uh, a property, property law. So, I own the property, when well, you own next door, and you decide that you want to open up a, uh, use it for a purpose that's going to infringe upon my property. Or I sell you property, and then, you claim, I come and I say, oh, it's the insult to you. How do you prove it? You know, documentation and proofs and, and squatting and all that kind of stuff. And inheritance, bequeathing it. And what if we're partners and we decide to split off or we're partners and we're neighbors and we build a fence together and the fence falls down and what do you do with the, who has to rebuild and who, who's forced, who could compel who to do what? Birthright. You know, can I, huh? Birth, firstborn birthright. Yeah, well, the discusses that as well. You know, can I build a, um, can I uh, make a window and look, you know, you know, and ogle at you while you're in your swimming pool or not? All these interesting stuff with the laws <laughs> of um, property with regards to uh, neighbors and stuff like that. Either way, it has a whole discussion about charity in the middle, uh, and in it, it, it describes, it says that if there's someone who says. I'm going to give a sella, sella is a denomination of uh, some coinage of the time. I'm going to give a sella to tzedakah, to charity, uh, with, that, uh, you know, with the merit that, that, that by, by giving the tzedakah, with giving the charity, my child will become healthy. Someone has an ill child, they want the child to get healthy, and they say, you know what, I'm giving charity, but only that in merit of the charity, my child will get healthy. So the Gemara says, behold, that person is completely righteous. The question is, okay, let's, it's nice to give charity, but wouldn't someone who's completely righteous be someone who gives charity, no strings attached? Isn't it even better to say I'm giving charity and I'm not even, I'm doing it for altruistic reasons. I'm doing it for, for you know, because God told me to give charity. I'm not doing it because I'll get something out of it in the back end. You would think that that, well, what would be a higher level of charity in your eyes? The highest level of charity is to do it to not expect to get anything back. If I say, oh, I'll give the charity, but I'll get a raffle ticket from it. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, I'm only going to give charity because I may, I may win the sweepstakes, you know. 
and I, oh, but doesn't see, you know, doesn't seem, you know, doesn't seem that this is the highest level of of of, of piety. So the answer is, um, very interestingly, it's digging deep into the psyche or, or into the conflict that dominates our lives. Your soul wants nothing more than to give charity. Your Yetzer Tov wants nothing more than to give charity. However, you have two enormous impediments in your path towards giving charity. Right? Number one is your body. Number two is your Yetzer Ra. And they want to hold, uh, be as tight-fisted as possible, and not, and, not, and, and, and not give. And that is a classic conflict that we have every day in our lives. Our soul is pulling us one way. Our body, which is much stronger, pulls us the other way. And we're stuck in the middle. We've got to make choices. Now, if our interests were aligned, if all factors in our lives were pointing towards one direction, well, life would be very simple. The fact that our interests are not aligned, that creates the conflict. So if we could find a way to make our body and our yetzer ra, evil inclination, want what our soul wants, well, then we can accomplish everything in life. All we have to do is to, I mean, the, the, the silver bullet, or the, or the magic bullet, I think it has bad connotations, but the, the silver bullet uh, in, for success in life is to find some sort of way to make that all the interests, all the parties uh, uh, that are controlling what, hap- what I feel, what I want to do in my life, all of them are pointing towards good. Well, how do you do that? You know what you do? You make that their interests are achieved with, you know, with their agenda, so to speak, is addressed as well. Thus, someone's body, right? people, their body, so to speak, they love their child, you know, and they don't need to, you know, you don't have to have your soul to love your child. Right? That's something that's more emotional, more linked to the body. So the body wants, wants the child and wants the, you know, the well-being of the child. That's, that's, that, you know, that's paramount for the body. The soul wants to give charity. So the genius, right, or the perfectly pious person is someone who knows how to get both sides of his, uh, you know, of, of his humanity to agree to do the mitzvah. And how do you do that? By saying, I'm giving charity so that my child becomes healthy. And thus the body is like, okay, if I, whatever, you know, if, if God forbid someone has a child that's not well, then the body is very happy to shell out cash for that. Right? You'll, you'll pay anything to save your child, right? The body has no problem doing that. So you, this guy convinced his body and his Yetzirah to do what is, what, what's a mitzvah. That is an act of total piety. Total piety is when someone navigates the conflict, the maelstrom. That's the right word. Maelstrom, I think it's pronounced. Right? Who do you guys have no idea? <laughs> it's like, oh, whatever, either way. Uh, but to, to navigate the, the chaos that exists because we have a conflicting interests and to come uh, to, to this you know, unified behavior, that's a mitzvah. But in that case, the, it's not the worst case scenario. I mean, the, the Yetzirah Rab will be stronger if you say, I give tzedakah so that I, if I'm sick, I heal. You're now doing tzedakah to a third party. So you are kind of like channeling for, for the child. For the child. It's for yours, but it's still, it's not you. 
Well, I think people it's less self interest. Oh, I think I, I don't. I don't agree with you. I, I'm saying as a parent, I don't, I don't think I, you, you don't think that people that that people care for their kids more than they care for themselves. I think that's a fair argument. Most I'll take a vote of the parents, <laughs> but yeah, if you read the news, then. <laughs> Start, uh, I don't know, maybe, 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 maybe it's, you know, maybe, <laughs> some do, yeah, yeah, uh, some do, some don't probably, but I, I think it's a good point, but either way, the, 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 you know, it's still an example, according to everyone, it's an example of kind of this alignment of, of interests. And the Yitzhar, uh, typically would choose you, yourself than even your kids, right? I don't know. Why not? Because it's more because the body really likes their kids. It's I mean you know it's interesting. Like they point out that animals have the same interest in the well being of their children than humans. Some of and them. I, <laughs> some of them. <laughs> yeah, some of them. Some, some people. Some hamsters eat their thing. Right, because because they're they're, they're wired they're to do something. You, know, you know, but it's 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 a phenomenon that we see very often in in, in nature. And in fact, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's sources, like Jewish sources, that are really, really old and talk about this phenomenon. And the reason why is because it's not necessarily soulful. The fact that you have compassion and love for your child is not necessarily because you have a soul, because you have a body, or maybe you have a nefesh. And that is these, um, the, you know, the emotion, the emotional attachment that, you, that a parent has to their child is not necessarily a result of them being a soul. Either way, I think that if this is the meaning behind, I think all of what we have proposed right now is, is very valid. But we're saying this, this is like the first thing that we're saying after the Shema, perhaps because it is the way to really live the life that we, we can and we ought to. Right? To try to find this unity of purpose, to try to live this great life that we have everything really. We have the physical, we have the spiritual. Every, everyone's happy. Right? However, it, it, it takes a lot of planning and a lot of uh, analysis, you know, and a lot of sacrifice as well. But it's possible to have it all. And, you know, I'll give you some other examples of this. Like, we find uh, Isaac, you know, one of the momentous events in his life, you know, perhaps the event that is described um, in, in most detail of his life is the fact that he wants to give a blessing to his, his son. Originally he wants to give it to Esau, he ends up giving it to Jacob. Everyone remember that story in Genesis? Mm-hmm. So what happens? He says to him, I want to give you a blessing. I want to give you a blessing, but you know what I need? I need like two freshly slaughtered animals. I need like massive steaks. And that's how I'm going to prepare. He was from Texas. I don't think so. He actually never <laughs> left Israel. That's <laughs> And the question is, like, if you had to think of a way to achieve, like, I want to really get to the level of prophecy. What would I do? You would say, uh, well, first you go to the best restaurant, and you order everything on the menu, and you fress and fress and fress. And when you're done fressing, you'll reach prophecy. Is that really how you reach prophecy? <laughs> the answer is, is that when, someone, when someone's soul wants to soar to such a degree that the prophecy is possible, you're going to have some resistance in the form of, the, of your body. You will have to assuage the interests of your body kind of throw the proverbial bone to your body to make sure that they're on board as well. So in this clash of body and soul, I think there is merit you know, to, you know, to what Tom described, uh, and that is to just give it a beatdown. But there's also this other idea where you could try to find some, some, some fusion, some unity, some point of agreement 
that everyone's happy. It doesn't have to be necessarily a fight. Give me another example. Like we talk about Shabbat, right? So Shabbat in my ha- my 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 house, it's amazing. It's awesome. I you know we're, we're, everyone's excited. You know we sing. Everyone gets dressed up. It's delightful. It's wonderful. Or at least that's what I'm trying to. Uh, that's the kind of atmosphere I'm trying to impart to my kids. Why? Because it's very good to have a positive association with the mitzvah. You know, a parent could say, oh, this is the way it is, and you're going to go to Sunday school whether you like it or not. Well, what happens then? They'll go to Sunday school, and they'll be miserable, and they have, mis- you know, and they have bad associations with it, and they can't wait until they, they finally have their bar mitzvah and they're out. And unfortunately, that's very common. We have to make sure that our Judaism, our religion that we're giving to our kids, is one that's appealing to them, it's exciting to them. Find some way to make Judaism fun. Make it exciting. And, and there's so much, there's so much wonderful, uh, um, just physical, so to speak, uh, or emotional uh, pleasure that we can have in our Judaism. And the, the, you know, we kind of feel like, and this is, this, you know, the weird uh, um, kind of uh, man's drive to asceticism, right? We have like this this bizarre need to uh, we feel really good when we're miserable. You know, we're justified in our misery. You know, we feel like we're dedicating ourselves when we when we, f- we don't feel good. You know, so like if, for example, like you know, we feel like on Yom Kippur, oh, I'm suffering because I'm really hungry. But uh, but okay, but this is spiritual because I'm suffering. Yeah, that's okay. You know, when someone suffers for a mitzvah, that's wonderful. But how much greater is it when someone is delighted in it with a mitzvah? On Yom Kippur, you're delighted in the fact that you're able to you're able to fast and do this wonderful mitzvah. You know, but especially with children, children don't respond to spiritual cues as much as physical cues. So if we're going to, if, if their association with their Judaism is going to be the fact that all the things that they cannot do, or all the, th- the things that are highlighted are the things that are, they don't find appealing, then you know what? What's their association with Judaism going to be? Unappealing. And that's very unfortunate. And we have this whole process. What, let's, the eights, let, let's invite Someone to the Seder that we don't usually invite. Who's that? The Yetzirah. And we're like, wait a minute. He doesn't, he's not supposed to have a place at the table. Well, maybe he is. Huh? Is that me? Don't usually invite me to Maybe. We've got to talk. I haven't, I haven't made, uh, made plans yet. <laughs> Extra ice cream? We have lots of matzah, I know that. You know, this past year this past year we were in New York for Pesach. Wait, there was never again. Oh, there's a lot of crazy. Yeah, every year there's, there's they, the number of kosher Passover number of kosher Passover items doubles every year. That's one tradition we break. It's like uh, it's like Moore's Law. Moore's Law. I said, I just said a Moore, there's a Moore's Law for Pesa, for, uh, for, kosher for, Pesa, kosher for Passover. Every, every 18 months, the amount of items that are kosher for Passover doubles. Nice. Uh, either way, that's, some, I think, some really interesting and very, perhaps, useful thoughts that we have, just the very first words. Now, what about, we have to love God with all, all our soul. What does that mean? How do you love God with your soul? You would think your soul already loves God. What does it, what does it even mean? 
to love God with your soul? How, we don't even feel our soul. How do we direct our soul to love God? Huh? But our soul, the truth is that the word, the word for soul in Hebrew is neshama. This is b'chol nafshecha, it's a nefesh, it's something else. It really means our life. We have to love God with all our life. Now what does that mean? It means that even if God takes away our life, we're okay with that. We're totally submitted to God, even if it means giving up our lives. Now this is already a little bit, you guys say, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a little bit much, right? Because to us, you know, and quite naturally, we feel like the most important thing is self-preservation. Yet the verse is saying that if there comes a conflict between your life and your love of God, the verse says you have to love God even if it means giving up your life. Well, God made our lives, so don't we owe Him that? Well, not owe, it's not ours even. But we don't feel that. So I want to share with you guys an incredible Gemara uh, that says as follows. It's uh, talking about Rabbi Akiva, and it's during, during the Shmad. The Shmad is what happened in the beginning, or in the 20s and 30s of the second century. So 120 and 130 of the Common Era. There was a really, it was a really, so we're talking about 50 years essentially after the temple is destroyed. And conditions for the Jews in Israel got very, very bad very fast. Uh, there was a fellow by the name of Hadrian, and he established a very, very um, uh, restrictive laws against Jewish practice. One of the things that he did is that he declared and decreed that if anyone studies Torah publicly, they will get executed. And there's a wonderful narrative here about uh, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was, he didn't stop teaching Torah. He's teaching publicly. His yeshiva is still open. So this guy comes over to Akiva and says, listen, they're going to kill you. They're going to kill you. So he tells him this wonderful, um, this wonderful analogy. I mentioned this when we talk about uh, why we study Torah. And he says to him, imagine you had a bunch of uh, fish that are, hiding around in the water and the, and the fox comes and says hey why, why, are you, why are you hiding and the water says well there's other big fish coming to eat us he says okay just come into the land you're safe no problem come into the land you're safe he says well in the land we're for sure dead here we don't know if we're dead maybe, they won't, maybe we're not dead so says the Rabbi Kiva to this fellow he says to him oh the Torah for us is, is our life blood we leave the proverbial water and then we're dead for sure we're in the water. Maybe we'll be dead. Maybe we won't be dead. Either way, um, um, what happened? A few days later, they captured Rabbi Akiva. They imprisoned him. Torture him. We'll get to the torture in a second. Uh, and they skinned him. They skinned him. We'll get to that in a second, guys. And. As he is being tortured and executed, they flayed him. Really, really bad way to bad way to go. Uh, he was saying the Shema. Oh, and he was delighted. Why? And his students, his students said to him, "He says, really? Now is when you're saying the Shema?" So they said that. So it's like, 
now of all things, like of all times, now is when you say the Shema? And he said to them as follows, his, my entire life, I was, when I read this first verse in the Torah, in the, uh, of the Vahavta, I was miserable. My entire life. Why? Because I was yearning for the opportunity to fulfill this mitzvah. I was never able to fulfill this mitzvah. And now, the mitzvah is here, I'm not going to say the Shema. And he essentially passed away in the middle of the Shema. So he didn't finish it? Well, he said the first verse of the Shema, and that's when he, he passed away. Now, to me, I always thought that, listen, you know, if there comes a point in time where we have to give up a life for God, okay, we'll do it. But that is perhaps suboptimal. You know, ideally, we'd like to kind of live a really long and fruitful life. If we're forced to, if someone says, hey, uh, I don't know, bow down to this idol or else I shoot you. Right? So we have to, we have to bite the bullet. It's unfortunate. <laughs> That's what we would think. Here, Rabbi Kiva is saying his whole life he was miserable because he didn't have this opportunity. To me, that was a shocker. The thought that there's an ideal. Right, of uh, it's, an, it's an opportunity that he can't wait to be able to achieve. And I was thinking that maybe what it means is it's, it's a, a certain dedication. It means your entire life comes down to what you're willing to die for. What you hold the most dear in your life is that that you're willing to die for. Now, it might mean uh, some project that you're doing, that if it's in the fire, you'll run back into the fire and danger your life to save the project. That is what you're living for. That's your most uh, highest idea because you're willing to die for it. I would say for a lot of people, it would be their kids. If their kids are, God forbid, God forbid, in, in, a, you know, in a burning house, you run back in. Well, what if you die? Okay, so that's what you want to die for this. Why? Because this is the most important ideal in your life. If God is the most important ideal in our lives, then we should be willing to die for it, for him. But it's interesting that the things that you, are, that you want to die for are the things that you want to live for. Yes. Now, what's, is it easier to die for, some, for a cause or live for a cause? It depends on how you live and how you die. No. <laughs> I, uh, I, have a, um, I have a quote from, uh, from my great-grandfather. You say, Walt, who's your great-grandfather? Why should we listen to him? He's one of the premier, preeminent um, rabbinic authorities in, in Lithuania. Lithuania is the epicenter of, of, of Jewish scholarship and the yeshiva world. Um, obviously before the war. He's one of the big, big names. And he wrote as follows. He said that it's much easier to jump in the fire, so to speak, to have the moment of inspiration to die for a cause than every day mm-hmm. right, live for the cause, to trudge through your life for a cause. It's a lot easier to be engulfed in the inspiration. Mm-hmm. But either way, we, we declare here that we want to dedicate our lives to God, even if we've given up our lives. And Rabbi Tiva is to such a degree that to him, he, he's like desiring this, as if this could be the ultimate um, um, fulfillment of a life well-lived, is a life where it was demonstrated tangibly that you live for God. How so? By dying for God. But he, then your great-grandfather would disagree with Rabbi Akiva, right? He would say no. It's more difficult. It's more meritorious. Oh, yeah, for sure it's more difficult because we know... To live for God and fulfill his mission. Absolutely. die for him. True. And my, my great-grandfather, by the way, was, uh, 
was he died he died for God as well in the Holocaust. Uh, he, was, he did Kedusha Shem, you know. He was he was killed because he was Jewish. Where? Uh, he was killed. Was in a camp? Uh, no, he was in a hospital. I don't know exactly where the hospital was, but in 1944, the Germans just burned down the whole hospital, all everyone mm. units. Unbelievable. The 22nd like of Tammuz. What was it? The second temple that they burned? That Everybody rabbis were jumping. Yeah, well, that's the, what Josephus writes. That all the Jews were jumping in the fire. You let us go down with the temple. Uh, so I, I do agree that that's an interesting point. But Rabbi Kiva, of course, lived his life for that as well. And he even says it. He even says, my whole life, I'm waiting for this. My whole life was a life of living for the cause and, 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 and dem- as manifest by, by giving up my life for, the cause, for that. Yeah, I won't judge Rabbi Akiva. <laughs> was there a question there? No more questions there. Um, so let's go a little further here. <clears throat> Well, because the Mishnah says, what does it mean, Mechol Nafshcha? I feel an Oktilus Nafshcha. The Mishnah defines it as with all your Nefesh. The word Nefesh is not Neshama, it's a little bit of a different word. And Nefesh means kind of your life. And why does it say, like, souls or lives? Like, like, like Shabbos. An extra soul? Yes. Well, that's an extra Neshama, not an extra Nefesh. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What does that even mean, by the way? They have an extra soul in Shabbos. You know what it means? Well, that, you know, you should have said extra spirituality during Shabbos. Is that right? That's what you <laughs> think, right? <laughs> no, that's the. Uh, How does Rashi points. define an Ashami Yasera? This to me is like such a repudiation of what I had thought. <laughs> Rashi. Define Rashi, the great commentator, defines neshama yaseira, the extra soul that we have on Shabbos, right? That the fact that we're able to eat tons of food and not get sick, not get nauseated. Oh, so lucky! So you have an extra. So we have this bottomless stomach on on, on, on Shabbos. Yeah. That doesn't sound very spiritual at all, no. don't you think? So what does that even mean? Like, what, what do we? What do we? The shama is clearly something spiritual. We have extra neshama. So we should have extra spirituality. And, and that means that we could just go to the uh, buffet and all you can eat and just engorge ourselves and not get sick, not want to puke? Uh, probably just not talking about real food. Huh? Just not talking about real food. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he is. I think he is. Is he? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I have a, I have a way to explain it. Of how, how does eating lots of food, how does that in any way equate to spirituality? In the, especially because it's labeled as an extra neshama. That's clearly referring to something spiritual. I have, a, I have an answer to Elevating that. the food for spirituality. Huh? What do you say? I said, are you more balanced on Shabbos? Well, balanced in your diet, is that what you're saying? No. Hmm? Body and soul? Well, I mean, no, what? No, no, please. Yeah, like the Gemara says some interesting things about Shabbos. He says, Shabbos, you have, uh, the rabbis say, you go and you find a piece of meat on Sunday, and you say, you buy it and say, this is for Shabbos. And then if you, it happens to be in the store on Monday, and you, you find something better, 
you buy that one and you swap out the other one. And you keep on everything you say is this is for Shabbos. That's 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 one source. Another source talks about the special foods of Shabbos. It seems like Shabbos, this whole spiritual day, Shabbos Kodesh, we even say, the holy Shabbos, and it's manifested in food, which is very bizarre. Which is very Jewish. <laughs> they tried to kill us, they didn't. Let's eat. <laughs> so, um, my theory to answer this question is that um, is that Shabbos is a crossover mitzvah. Shabbos is a crossover mitzvah. How so? Shabbos is a mitzvah that a lot of the very activities that we do on Shabbos are things that our body is very happy with as well. Remember, we're told in the Talmud, go buy yourself the best food you could possibly get for Shabbos. The best food, that's something physical. Why is we buying food for Shabbos? Shabbos should be a day that we sit there and we contemplate and... You know, we study Torah. We have a little food, whatever, just to cover, you know, cover our needs. Why are we suddenly focusing so much on our uh, on, on on our physical? You know. Um, so I, I was thinking that maybe maybe, maybe the, the quality of Shabbos is the fact that it's the experience, the spiritual experience is uh, um, we could feel it physically. Means, I'll give you guys an example. Normally, if I shake a lulav, everyone's just shook a lulav before, right? you have basically a branch, a bunch of small branches, and a lemon. Don't call it a citron, it's a lemon. <laughs> <laughs> an etrog. Uh, that's what it is, and that's what it feels like, and we're shaking it, and we feel a little weird. And then we ask ourselves, why did I pay $150 for this set? And you know why we, we don't feel it? Because it's an entirely spiritual feeling. Thus, your body feels absolutely nothing. We eat matzah, we're chewing crackers. We're not experiencing the essence. And that's really the problem with mitzvahs. We don't feel that we have nothing, we have no soul, we have no way to internalize, to sense what's actually going on, because we don't sense what our soul senses. We don't feel like what our soul feels. It's like the guy who loses his taste buds. It's a good example. Someone who loses his entire taste buds. You know? So what do they eat? They eat whatever's cheapest. Or straws, actually. They they should chew grass. And then you give them a sizzling steak. Medium rare. Perfect. And they're chewing it as if it's it's sand, as if it's gravel, as if it's soil. It's it's straw, exactly. And and they're chewing it. And and to them, it's like nothing. And everyone else at the table is like, has their saliva just (laughs) dripping down, right? And this person is just... You know, that's what we're like in this world. We have zero taste buds for spirituality, and that's why for us the mitzvahs seem dry. We're chewing gravel. We don't see nuance in mitzvah. We don't have the feeling and the insight. And we're not drooling for mitzvahs. Shabbos is a crossover. The idea of holiness is is where the physical and the spiritual meet. Shabbos is a crossover. Thus, we feel the mitzvah. The mitzvah is presented in a way that it's delicious food. A body, a body feels that. A body starts sal- you know, saliva. If you want to have a little bit of an insight to what, your, what experience does your soul go through when you do a mitzvah, the same feeling that your body goes through when you experience Shabbos. That's what it's like. It, you can finally taste the mitzvah. 
you know, for once, one, one, one day a week, you could taste the mitzvah what it's like. You'd get temporary taste buds on Shabbos. And that's why, and it's, you talk about an extra soul. It's an extra soul. And how does that manifest? We can eat tons of food. Why? Because on Shabbos, the food is the spiritual. We can feel it, we can sense it, we have the taste buds for mitzvahs on Shabbos, for the mitzvah of Shabbos. Very interesting insight. By the way, I'll tell you guys another thing. We find that the Talmud, it seems increasingly unlikely that we'll get to the bottom here, but... What a shock. We find in the Talmud that there are three things that are a measure of the world to come. Me'ein olam haba. We might have mentioned this, right? One of them is Shabbat. Shabbat is a measure of the world to come. I don't think we actually spoke about it in depth. On the third one. Right. We spent some time on the third one. All right. <laughs> so, and the first thing that's a measure of the world to come is Lama Ba. So if you want to know what Lama Ba is like, in a small way you can experience it in Shabbat. Now, what that is, I have at least four, interpre- four, four, four answers. What about Shabbat is akin, is a corollary to Olam Haba. I have a, there's at least four reasons, maybe even more. But one of the reasons is, is that for us in this world, in our current iteration, doing mitzvahs, doing spiritual activities, feel foreign. However, your soul, if you could feel your soul, if you were able to just kind of switch the, uh, the, the, you know, the emotions or the senses to be, if you had a mode that you could just switch to body to soul and suddenly you feel what your soul feels and you don't feel what your body feels, then a mitzvah, you would taste it. it would, you would have nuance. You would have salt is the mitzvah. And you would, you would, would you, covet it. You would desire it. Would you need mitzvahs? Well, it would, it, it's like food. You would need it like food, just like your body needs food. It would be that that fills you up. If you're purely spiritual, no body, you'll eat spiritual, spiritual food. Right, but there's no I mean, mitzvahs are for the for, to make the physical. Well, what, what did we read a few weeks ago in the parsha? We read a few weeks ago that man needs more than bread alone. You need the word of God. Yes. The word of God is the equivalent of bread. The word of God for the soul is the equivalent of bread for the body. What is a mitzvah that a soul will do without a body? Let's suppose all the souls are there, whatever. Forget about doing a mitzvah. It means a spiritual activity or a spiritual okay. experience or a spiritual agenda. Think about it that way. Don't think of a mitzvah because like, it's hard to think of a mitzvah without a body. You know? Mitzvahs are for bodies, right? You True. need a body to do a mitzvah. Right, but mitzvah, mitzvah, mitzvahs are spiritual activities for a body that's totally <laughs> stymied as to why we're doing this. <laughs> Befuddled. I mean, because we have a body, we have the mitzvah, right? Oh, yeah. Because... A mitzvah for our, if we just had souls, then the soul wouldn't need to be molded. Elevate, yeah. Right, exactly. But either way, for the soul, it feels very natural to do a mitzvah. It feels something that makes a lot of sense. On Shabbat, we get a taste of what it's like in Lama Ba. In Lama Ba, we have just, we have the, we, the switch has turned to the body, and therefore, the switch has turned to the body, and therefore, uh, into the soul, and therefore, Soulful activities feel very natural. On Shabbat is an example of that. We get a temporary taste buds. On Shabbat, the mitzvahs of Shabbat, we experience and we feel it very intimately, very naturally, very tangibly. Shabbat is the temporary taste buds. Good, so, good going back to class why name. you say lives or souls, if 
It does say it, that's what it says. It says, nefesh. Life, nefesh. Nefesh means, means, nefesh means your life, so it means. Well, it's one of the levels of soul, right? You have uh, neshama, you have... uh, Everything that's living has a nefesh, that's right. Living in the way we define living. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't use the nefesh in that context. I'd use the neshama in that context. Nefesh means your life, which is the binding of, of your body and soul. So typically, that's that's, that's the, the the term nefesh is the ter- is the term for a human. Human is more than body or soul. It's the fusion of the two. So where the two meet is where your nefesh meets. All right. So if you remember, we talked about lashon hara. Lashon hara is a manifestation of humanity because speech, by definition, is half spiritual, half physical. It's this touch point between the two. And we said that when the verse says that God made a nefesh chaya, which means a living being, the way it's translated in the Unculus is that God made a speaking being, because that's what it is. A human is a nefesh, fusion of soul and body, and therefore, if that is manifest in our speech, it seems very appropriate to translate it uh, as such. How's everyone doing here? Did I lose the crowd yet? No? No. Okay, let's move on here. What are you talking about? I have no idea. (laughs) Uh, So, how do you get love? How do you love God? How do we get there? How do we love God? We have a hard time even understanding God, even conceptualizing the idea of God. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Huh? Right, exactly. Trying to understand God is part of loving God. So you say if we understand God, we'll love God, but we have a hard time understanding God. Well, the, the, the process. Huh? Um, what do you say? I'm sorry? So if we're appreciative of God, then we'll... I like that. I think that would work. Mm-hmm. And that... And if we really feel it, we'll, we'll be appreciative, like the laws of reciprocity. Right? Is that what you're saying? To reciprocate. To respond in kind. Right? Someone does something good for you, you, you feel a feeling of indebtedness to them. So we're saying that we have that towards God, because the God does good for us. True, but maybe the feeling is, is, is still there. It's, but it's not a payment because we can't paint God. We can't. And God, God's situation does not change whether we're good or bad, or whether we pray or we don't pray, or we do mitzvahs or we're not. Like, that doesn't change. It's like just maintaining a loving marriage. The feeling of love is there. You have to take proactive steps to keep that relationship. So, so too. So, uh, what's the comparison? So you you're saying that so what are the proactive steps that you would do to it? So my question is like this: you go ahead. So the, I think there are many there are different ways of interpreting our relation to God and how we love God. One is the, the image of a marriage. So we okay. have a ketuvah, and each partner has a role, and then you love by fulfilling that role. So we said, yeah, we'll uh, do one, we'll listen. So we we'll have to do it. 
Another one showing love is to fulfill his will. So when we try to understand Torah and do the mitzvot and so on, we are kind of doing our part and, and showing we'll, love. We'll love to such a degree that we're willing to give up our lives for it? Rabbi Akiva would. Well, what about us? Is this needless for us? Well, I think probably a number of us would be willing to uh, risk in some sense. Not risk. Give up your life. Bite the bullet. Gun is loaded. This is not uh, Russian roulette. The gun is loaded. Right? Be well, totally we willing. But how do you get to the point, not we're not going to try to strive through a Beitiva's level, but how do you get to the point of loving God even on a basic level? What steps do I do to improve? Someone mentioned to get to get to know God. Who said that? Someone said that. I don't remember who said that. To understand, if you understand God, then you love God. Uh, well, how do you understand God? Well, why don't we understand God? Well, first, we would never be able to understand God. Okay. So our, the process of trying to understand God or what He wants to reveal to us that's part of the loving relationship. And therefore, she's saying, if we understand God, or to the degree that we, to the degree that our understanding of God improves, that will reflect in love. Yes. Now, there's the this other thing. Prioritizing your time to make it clear to understand the opportunity to understand in the discussion that we're having now is when you can choose to do other things. So that would. That's an act of love, but that's already after you have the love. How does it build well, the love? Or what if you feel like staying home and watching TV? But you make that conscious decision. I need to spend time learning more about that. See, the act of sacrifice engenders love. And it's not, it's not like I'm giving up my life. Nobody's pointing a gun at my head. I'm saying I make a choice. I'm just choosing to change my schedule and, and spend time learning about God. Whew. So everyone seems to have a, be in consensus to this idea that if we, or I'm, I'm saying, like whatever, the conversation is in consensus, I don't put words in everyone's mouth here, that if we understand God and we try to understand God, well then that will reflect emotionally as well. Well, that's one. It's a very incredible idea. But, but this no, is a wait, novel wait. idea. But, no, that, but it's not the only. I, don't, I, mean, I, I, I agree with it entirely. By some, the way, some people and people have argued that doing chukim it's even more important than the, doing those that you understand. Yeah, right. Because you, without it's understanding, yeah, we, uh, because you yeah. under, because you don't understand it and you still do it. It's so therefore it's an act of like dedication, so to speak, where you right. suspend your own mind. Yeah, and then you do it because that's, that's what you're supposed to do. So I think I, it, my view of that answer is that it's multifaceted. It, it, it has like many things regarding different aspects of it. And one is the marriage relation. Another one is that appears all the time. It's the, a father, son, daughter relation. How does a son love a father? How? Yeah. Well, it's primarily because of appreciation. The parents so it's a reciprocity thing. I mean, kids typically don't reciprocate. <laughs> um, you give. Yeah, you can't give back to God. I mean, you yeah. eventually. Well, maybe. Maybe. I'm waiting for that day. <laughs> It's what I'm saying. Sit down. If you keep the mitzvot, it brings you closer. It will bring about love. And then you understand, okay, well, why I'm doing it and that, okay, I understand it. And you want to do it and you do it. And 
one mitzvah will bring you to the next one, because that's, you know, that's, that's how it is. If you do good, it's only going to inspire you to do good. And then you get closer to Hashem. Really these are all saying these incredible. I don't know if everyone realizes that, like the enormity, the magnitude of what we're saying here. We're saying incredible ideas. We're saying that there's doing mitzvahs or getting closer to understanding God, uh, 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 understanding God that will bring about love. I think these are incredible insights. And um, what I want to share with you guys is one of the great, great lines we'll, uh, we'll have. Like one of the great processes are, that are described, and that's the Rambam, Maimonides. And Maimonides, he asked the same question we asked. How do you love God? How do you do it? Especially compounded by the fact that we don't even understand God. Our understanding is so it's, it's so rudimentary, it's so basic. It's just like a vague, de- not a vague definition, it's a definition, but it's a definition that precludes us from totally understanding it. By definition. So he says, quoting us free, he says as follows. He says, the way you love God is by understanding God. You guys have the nail on the head. But not understanding God himself, rather understanding what God gave us as proxies to understand God. I.e., let's say the Torah as an example. If the more you understand Torah, the more you have some sort of insight into God's mind, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the greater your understanding of God, and therefore the more love you'll have. But you said Torah, for example. But it's, it's Torah. It's not well, no. Example, right? He gives three examples. Torah. What else? Torah. Torah. Both, no. Right? Torah. Science. God's handiwork. God, what God did. You see the complexity. You see everything works so nicely. You see the Torah. You see the complexity. You see things work so nicely. Or, or the mitzvahs. Right? If you really understand the mitzvahs, right, that's and that's God's Torah. commandments. That's understanding Torah. Right? Well, yes, but it, Torah, Torah, Torah can be very theoretical as well. Mitzvah means the mitzvah that you do. To see how yeah. a, a, a commandment and how the commandment is designed in a way to perfect humanity and how the commandments in their entirety are so perfectly designed as the exact 213 commandments to make someone great. And how it tends to different elements. And you mentioned the chukim and all that stuff. right? There's enormous, enormous, infinite complexity in, in all these three elements. And there are three different ways to approach it because these are three things that God gave us. God could have gave, given us a very simple, you don't have to have a double helix structure. God could have made humanity without cells, without, without breaking it down to a more granular subatomic level. But he did it in this way as a means for us to gain some sort of insight into the idea of infinity. When we think that we translate as being infinitely complex and infinitely wondersome and just so marvelous, that gives us an insight as to the uh, nature of the Creator in the form of Torah or science or the mitzvahs. Thus, indeed, God Himself will, will have a very hard time actually feeling and understanding, feeling the understanding in a tangible way. But the Torah was given to us as a means to, by proxy, understand God. The science, right? When I say science, I, I, I don't. I mean uh, God's handiwork. So, so that can mean in, in a variety of ways: biology, it can mean you know how the systems with the the uh, uh, astrology, uh, not astrology, astronomy. Sorry, astrology, something else. <laughs> astrology <laughs> with the coots, right? Yeah. Um, I get mixed up with the astrology yeah. and astronomy. Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't, you know, biology and, and just the yeah, earth all sciences, the sciences, all the sciences, right? Science. Physics as well, of course. So, and that is a way for us to gain an insight as as to how complex our world is, and we extrapolate that to realize just how incredible the idea of an infinite creator is. Now, go, go ahead. So Maimonides always likes to give percentages of. Does he give a percentage of how much of science you should know, how much Torah you should know? Well, I think he 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 says either you, you, you could choose either one of these paths with regards to this mitzvah. It means with regards to the mitzvah of loving God, there's three paths that you could choose. Well, there's one process in three different areas of study. And he, or the process is as follows. He describes the process as well. He says, number one, you think in some area. Number two, you contemplate means very deep thinking. Number three, you have an insight. You, you, know, you hit pay dirt. You have an aha moment when you get it. And then it's pleasure, the idea of pleasure, the idea where, it, where it sweep, the emotion sweeps over you. Those four steps. And that makes you love God. So where, where is this? In the guide? It's in the guide? Or yeah, where is this? This four Go ahead. Steps. It's, it's not the guide. It's not the Anaheim Go ahead. Where else is it? Not the Mishnah. It's not the Pirish Mishnah. Yes. It's not the commentary of the Mishnah. It's not on the letters to Yemen or the letters to the Chachmilunil. It's not in any one of the uh, treatises that he wrote. Where is it? So the Rambam wrote a lot of different things. Like I said, I don't know if you mentioned this before, but uh, I have a a whole class, by the way, a biographical sketch of the Rambam, what his role was. Very fascinating stuff. Maybe we'll do it one time here. Uh, It's so interesting. Did you see his grave? Yeah, it's very cool. Yes, I did. It's incredible. Um, Sorry. So he had a problem that scholars have had for thousands of years, or at least I don't know if they had the problem or they were bothered by the problem as much as it was just not out there. And that is that we know how many mitzvahs are in the Torah. That's thirteen. How do we know that? Because Tanit, my daughter, was born with six thirteen. She was. That was her weight. That was, was her weight. Yeah. Or she wasn't born in, in June, nine, June 13th. <laughs> so everyone knows the Sishon 13. How do you know that? Yeah, how does the, how does the Ramam know the that? Because the Talmud says it. Right? The Talmud says it. What are the Sishon 13 mitzvahs? What is the exact breakdown of mitzvahs? Some mitzvahs have are categories, really. Right? Doing kindness is a category. It means a lot of different things. So how do you know what's a category and what's a subcategory? And what's the breakdown exactly of the 613 mitzvahs and the 365 mm-hmm. negative mitzvahs? 248 positive. Everyone knew that. The Ram says, I'll write a book for you that's called the Book of the Mitzvahs. And I'll start counting 248 mitzvah 1, mitzvah 2, mitzvah 3, mitzvah 4. And by the way, you know what? I'll do it in order of importance as well. And a few classes ago, I asked you a question. It's not in order of importance. Yes, it is. Well, a few classes ago, I asked where, you a question. Where is the source? It's, I know you, you've had this problem with me before. Yes. It's clearly <laughs> of importance. When he starts off with the first mitzvah is believe in God. And the, second mitzvah, the second mitzvah is God is one. And the Maybe third that's mitzvah... that's the most obvious. Yeah, you know. it's, 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 it's heavily yeah. implied. I don't know if it's... You, know, you, you like sources. Either way. Is that the one but that when the you... Scroll is it sounds more like... 
Art Stroll is doing a mitzvah. But no, Art Stroll is doing a bunch of mitzvahs that was written like two hundred years after the, the Rambam wrote it. But that's based upon the Rambam. Okay, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That. Means he that book, the book of the Chinuch, the book of the education. That book was he just copied Maimonides' six hundred thirteen mitzvahs, and he wrote a book on those six hundred thirteen mitzvahs. But what is a mitzvah? What's not a mitzvah? He used Maimonides' lists. So wait, wait. Which is just just for the scope of scholarship. Imagine I told you here. Here's the Torah. Here's all the Talmud. Here's all the Midrash. Here's all the Sefarim, Torah from all the Jewish sources. I want you to tell me what are this, what are the mitzvahs and what are the not what are not. So you'll probably count if you count the Torah, you'll, you'll count thousands of mitzvahs, right? Because you have no idea what is actually a category and what is a subcategory. The six hundred thirteen mitzvahs are three six hundred thirteen categories of mitzvahs. So what is like for example, is it a mitzvah to get married or not? Is it what? A to get married or not? Is it, we know it's mitzvah to have children. Is it mitzvah to get married or not? Mitzvah? I don't know. You tell me. Huh? Yeah, so maybe it's just, it's not a mitzvah, it's just, let's say, what's called a heksha mitzvah. It's an enabling mitzvah. You know, so that, the Rama, Maimonides, he's of the opinion that it's a mitzvah to, 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 to get married. And all the other commentators, it means after Maimonides opened the door of, of asking the question, what's a, mitzvah, what's a general category, what's an enabling category, or what's a subcategory, people jumped at him and said, no, that's not a mitzvah, that's just an enabler. But he counts as one of the 630 mitzvahs. It's a mitzvah to, 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 to get married. And that's it. You know, and he counts as one of the 630 mitzvahs. What you're saying? So when, when you... Huh? Oh, you oh, sorry. Doesn't it say you leave your parents and go on a mitzvah? Uh, therefore, therefore, man should leave his father and mother and leave his wife and, right? and they become one flesh. Right, so is that a mitzvah or not? We, we have no clue where to start, right? The... First place to start is probably the way to know all of Talmud by heart, backwards and forwards, and have complete access to everything at once. And by the way, this is at the time where nothing's printed. So whatever you're reading is from whatever copy your, your you know, whatever handwritten copy your town has, if it has it, if it doesn't have it. So that's why it might be a good idea to commit it all to memory, just to simplify things. You know? We have, but, we have Ben 2.0 yeah. okay. for that. But so when you, when you said this uh, a few classes ago, you said, this is the first one, this is the second one, and I ask you, which one is the last one? The least important mitzvah. <laughs> and nothing you can say that it is least important. Well, you just said they were yeah, listed in order. order. I think it's more in order. So I want to know the last one. What? Which one is the Do least important? I have a rant on this, by the way. I have something to say. Sorry. You're <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. It's clearly in order of importance. I don't know why I have to argue about this so much. It's clearly in order of importance, guys. I, I'm okay with you. My problem is, is that you didn't even heard of the, you didn't even heard of this book until five minutes ago, and now you're arguing with me about the, the, no, no, no. I'm not oh, arguing okay. about the order of importance. I, I'm okay with that. It's one of the mitzvahs. I didn't. But I'm okay with that. I, I'm not. But how many how many separate mitzvahs are the red heifer? Is the process a mitzvah or not? Is the, is you know, or is it a mitzvah at all? Maybe it's just a maybe it's just a, a solution to a problem. If you have well, a problem, that is, it a mitzvah, is it a mitzvah to uh, to to slaughter an animal in a kosher fashion or not? No, I'm saying is it a mitzvah? No, probably not. Because that's I mean, listen. If you're hungry, you have to eat kosher food. But it's not a mitzvah to grow and slaughter it, right? But it's like is it or is it not? But that's well, following it's. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's no, no, a law yeah. of how you do it. The question is, is it a mitzvah or not? Well, the, it, it, it's, it's, it's like... It's is it a, one of the 613 mitzvahs? What if someone's a vegetarian? 
Uh, if someone's a vegetarian, they cannot fulfill all the mitzvahs? Is that, is that what you're trying to tell me? Okay, like, just, we would have no clue, we would have no clue how to actually do this. And no one did it until Maimonides did it. But, I mean, for example, blowing the shofar. That's a mitzvah, clearly. Well, hearing the shofar is the mitzvah. Right, well, Not, yeah. Blowing, okay, blowing hearing, hearing, hearing the shofar, that's right, that's right. So blowing is enabling. Yeah, well, and but the mitzvah, the, even, the, even the blessing for the mitzvah of blowing the shofar right, is so to so hear so the shofar, the shmoah yeah. shofar. It's not blowing it. So blowing huh? the shofar is not a mitzvah. Well, it's an it's no, 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 it's not, no. The, the mitzvah is, is hearing it. It's even hearing, the, yeah. even the guy that's blowing it is hearing it. It's like the Megillah, right? Yeah. But Megillah is a rabbinic principle. Megillah, the reading of Megillah, that's one of the seven rabbinic mitzvahs. So you still have to tell me what the last one is. So, you'll, so you'll find it. Let, me, let me tell you my rant in this. So, by the way, if you look at the, the Mishnah Torah, that's not a rant, it's just a, an insight. It's just clever insight. If you look at the Mishnah Torah, which, by the way, I'm using words. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? We're talking about the different words of Maimonides. The, when someone says Maimonides writes, most often it'll be referred to, if it's philosophical in any way, it'll be referred to the Maimonides Guide to the Perplexed. It's an enormously impactful and controversial book that he wrote. But if it's talking about you know, one of the roles that he took upon himself was to organize all of Jewish law. Not only that, all, all, all of Jewish everything, from theology to philosophy to law to everything. And that he did in the book, in, in a set of 14 books, called either called Yad HaChazaka or Mishnah Torah. It's two names for the same set of books. The word Yad, by the way, in Gematria is 14. So it's nice there's 14 books, and it's called Yad HaChazaka. In it, he also works in conceptual order. Right? The first things of the, of the foundations of the Torah, the first book is the book of knowledge, which deals with the five laws that are discussed are the laws of the foundation of the Torah, the laws of idolatry, which is the second mitzvah, right, of the Ten Commandments, laws of Torah study, the laws of character, right? behavior, midos, and the laws of tshuva, repentance. Clearly, these are the biddies, or you know, these are crucial, this very. Oh, oh, yeah. Then he talks about prophecy. Prophecy. Yeah, well, that's in the first set of laws, the laws of the foundations of the Torah. The first four is what you. The first four is theology, and, and then, then the five is. That's right. That's right. That's what you're talking about. Right, but no, but that's in a, that section is the first section. I just mentioned the first five sections. Um, either way, uh, the last thing that he mentions, the last set of laws, the last yeah, book, is called Melachim, mm-hmm. means kings. So that deals with. Like the laws of of courts and establishing courts and running your government, and the second to last thing that he mentions, the second to last section he talks about is the laws of of, of Gentiles. Sla- second to last thing that he mentions is the laws of Gentiles, and these laws are, are for Gentiles really. They're not laws that are pro- that, that that are applicable to Jews. And the last thing that he mentions is the laws of Messiah. Last two chapters, laws of Messiah. So I, I have quipped in the past that it's interesting that he's telling the Jews who are reading the book, that's the target audience, right? <laughs> he's telling the Jews, for you, it's more important to know 
what Gentiles need to do than to learn about Messiah. And by the way, if, if you think I'm saying that on my own, several times in the laws of Messiah, in those two chapters, he tells you, he exhorts his reader to know that these things are not so important to study. And in fact, he writes something like, uh, and, and a lot of these issues are, are not so, well, not so clearly verified in the sources because they're not so important to know. And therefore, any analyses of what are the exact details of this law is fruitless. It's fruitless and it's silly to do and you gain nothing from it. That's what he writes. And we believe that it's going to come, but when it comes, we'll find out more about it. That's what he writes. My mind is writes, don't trust me, please don't check it out. So, Google it. Google it, the last, the laws, Maimonides on Messiah, there's two chapters, there's chapter, I think, 10 and 11 of the laws of, of, uh, of Malachim, of Kings, and the book is called Shoftim, which means Judges, so the laws of Kings. It's Kings and Wars. That's this last section, I think it's chapter 11, chapter 10, chapter 11. He tells you what Messiah is, and then he tells you, read it, trust me guys, read it, oh, don't trust me. Sorry. Don't trust me. Making it all up. Right? <laughs> Disprove you. Right? That's what he says. Now, I'll, I, what I would point out that is there a coincidence that Maimonides organized his book in a way that the, that the thing that he writes more than anything else, this is not important to know, and that he repeats that theme several times is the last thing that he mentions. Is that a shocker? Or was it just randomly? You think Maimonides worked randomly? If you think so, then you have no idea about who we're talking about. <laughs> if you think that in any way, in any capacity, he would just do something just by chance, coincidentally, ah, ah we could, it's, it could be either way. <laughs> let's, just, let's just take it out of hand. Okay, the laws of, of foundation store, let's do that first. You know? Oh, let's pull that again. You know? What is the Torah mentioned over uh, three times? It's the widow, or is it the um, non-Jewish? That you should be. Married? You should love? Yes. It's, the, it's everyone, love God. And love the convert. Stranger in you. Because you were a stranger. That's right. Yeah. Okay, but, okay, but you're saying the non-Jew in this case is second to last. No, I'm saying the laws of non-Jews. not the, the laws of non-Jews as written for Jews. Which is obviously not very useful, right? When would you ever, like, if the Jew who's reading the book is like, when would this ever apply to me? Never. You know why? Because even if I get baptized, I might get wet, but I'll still stay Jewish. Right? <laughs> So it's really never pertinent for you. <laughs> like, no matter how many times someone gets baptized, they'll still be Jewish. You could do a thousand, a thousand million sins, otherwise shortened as a billion sins, you'll still be Jewish. There's nothing you could do to not be Jewish. So it's very, I would say, it's exceedingly irrelevant, right? But it's still part of the corpus of the Torah. They can still get excommunicated. Oh, yeah, but you don't become non-Jewish. <laughs> You know, a lot of things can happen. You get executed in, in Jewish courts under certain <laughs> circumstances. You're still, you're still Jewish. Um, so that's, uh, I think, uh, enough evidence, I think, the fact that, uh, that it's organized in such a way that he wrote it in conceptual order. Either way, so Maimonides in Mitzvah 3 of the Book of Mitzvahs says the Mitzvah number 3 is to love God. And he says, how do you love God? You think and you contemplate. Contemplate is not a good enough word, by the way. I say contemplate because the best word I came up with. It's, it's think deeply, like dwell, like analyze, uh, uh, is break your head over either Torah, science, or mitzvahs until you have an insight and you have the highest level of pleasure. 
And by the way, the words that Maimonides used to describe the highest level of pleasure are the same words that he used to describe Olam Abba. What he's telling you is that it's possible to have the experience of Olam Abba in this world. Right? Because Olam Abba is having a soulful pleasure, soulful pleasure in the, in the, in the, in the way the soul understands, i.e., in conceptualizing God, well, you can do it as well in this world. It's just a lot harder in this world because you have to go through a lot to expose that part of who you are. But he says you can have the highest levels of pleasure possible. Well, how would you, did you actually get it? No, I've got the Shema is 1,118. So 1, oh, Shema Yisrael Hashem, 1,118. Makes sense. There's an 18 there, but... Okay, uh, let's quickly read through here. I don't. I really. I really. I'm not. We're not doing part three, guys. <laughs> don't even think. Part three. Oh, I can read it very fast. <laughs> uh, so let's let's go through it and we'll talk about the highlights um, of it. So we find. Um, so let these matters that may be upon your heart. Teach them thoroughly to your children and speak of them while you sit at your home, while you walk on the way when you retire and when you rise. That's why we say the Shema in the morning and at night. But we teach Torah. The teaching Torah to our children is continuity for Judaism. If we, Maimonides writes that if there is a city, I think what he writes is if there's a city that doesn't have a, a, a Jewish school, the city has to be burned down. I think he's right. Or, 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 I don't remember if he says you cannot live in such a city or you can't live in such a city or you have to burn it down or something, like, something crazy like that. Why? Because if there's no Jewish education for our kids, Judaism ends. It, doesn't, it cannot possibly skip a generation. If you miss one generation, you're done. That's right. <laughs> the first thing we created was the Hebrew school. Bind them as a sign upon your arm, let them be filaments in your eyes, write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. If you remember, we spoke last week about the Chafetz Chaim, the, the, the parable, the analogy that he gives, that there's this, that, that, you know, that, that we're talking about this very complex factory that we're trying to organize, and, we, and the Shema is the repetition of the instructions, and we write them on the doors, and we bind them on our head. Uh, that's, that's what the Tefillin is. Tefillin is, I'm taking the Shema, basically, and the lessons of the Shema, and I'm wrapping them to my body, my brain, and to my heart, every day. And the doorposts on every door, and reminds me of, this, of these ideas. Okay, now, in... in Paragraph number two, we talked, we, we kind of pivot into an entirely different, it has a very different feel to it. I'll see if you guys can, you know, we can pick it up. It, it starts talking about, first of all, all the commandments here. And it will come to pass that if you continually hearken to my commandments that I command you today to love Hashem your God and to preserve and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will provide rain for your land in its proper time, the early and the late rains, that you may gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil. I will provide grass in your field for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. So it says, if you listen to the Torah, you'll have it good. You'll have the rain, you'll have the grain, you'll have the wine, the oil, you'll have the grass, you have it all. So what it's essentially describing here is reward and punishment. However, beware, the next verse, lest your heart be seduced and you turn astray and serve gods of others and bow to them. Then the wrath of Hashem will blaze against you. You will strain the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will, yield, it will not yield its produce and you will be swiftly be banished from the goodly land which Hashem gives you. By the way, these things have all happened. We were swiftly banned from the land as is predicted multiple times in the Torah. Place these words of mine upon your heart and upon your soul. Bind them for a sign upon your arm and let, these, let them be filling between your eyes. What it's telling us is that 
the idea of reward and punishment is something so important that it's got to be included amongst those those other things that we read in Deva Hafta. It's got to be in our doorpost, it's got to be in our tefillin, we've got to repeat it every day. And the question is why? I think it's like reward and punishment is something really nice. We're really glad to have reward and punishment, at least in the form of reward. Yet, why is it such a core element of, of, of Jewish life that is part of the Shema? You know, I'll tell you even more. By the way, our favorite, our favorite uh, uh, sage of all time, Maimonides. All right, so he writes the 13 principles of faith. Where does he write that, Pietro? Do you know? Mm-hmm. Well, he gathers stuff. Well, it's a guide. Huh? It's not a guide. It's not a guide. Again, we start again? Yep. Huh? Yep. It's not in the Yad. <laughs> it's not in the Yad, otherwise it's in the Torah. It's not in the Book of Mitzvot. It's not the Sefer Mitzvot. And it's not in any of the letters that he wrote. It's in fact in the commentary of the Mishnah. It was the first work of Maimonides. Like, if Maimonides just wrote the commentary of the Mishnah, if he just wrote that, just that, he would be a legend for all time. He would be an unimaginable, like, like that work on its own, that would be, that's 500 lifetimes of achievement. He was really young, actually. He, he published it when he was 24 years old. Yeah. By the way, and he's living for nine years in caves, hiding from radical Muslims. Mm-hmm. That's what he's doing for those nine years. The Almohads. They, he moved from his house, his family in, 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 uh, in Spain. They moved uh, to Fez in Morocco because they were kicked out with the ultimatum. Either, either you convert to Islam or we'll or we kill you. And they moved to Fez and they, they ended up in the Atlas Mountains in northern Morocco because that was the only place to hide. And under those conditions, as a teenager, he writes a commentary on the entire mission, all 63 books. And by the way, you say, oh, a commentary on the mission, that's no big deal, right? He was the first to do it. In more than, almost a thousand years since the mission was written, no one had, had succeeded in writing an entire commentary on the mission. And Mamadis does it. And he does it as a teenager living in a cave, you know. It's, it's unimaginable the scope of accomplishments that we're dealing with here. But he has an introduction on one of the chapters. He, well, first of all, a lot of it, it, I don't, you know what, I don't want to do too many spoilers alert. Spoilers here, because I want to give a class on the monitors. I got inspired to talk about it, to give you guys a little biographical taste of, uh, of who he was and what his roles were. But he writes in, in one of the introductions, he writes, I will organize for you, crystallize the 13 core principles of Judaism. And if you look at the last four of the 13 principles of faith, they all revolve around the idea of reward and punishment. One of them is God gives reward and punishment. One of them, God knows everything that we do. Right? Because if God doesn't know, then there can't be reward and punishment. One of them is Mashiach. And one of them is Tchiat HaMetim, reviving the dead, the dead, resurrection. Four of them. Four out of the 13. Obviously, there's something very crucial about reward and punishment that without it, we cannot have Judaism. It's so critical. Now, what, what's so important about reward and punishment? It surrounds uh, around the idea of responsibility. Okay. I'm intrigued. Which is, I mean, if there's no sense of responsibility, then so on, there's nothing. I mean, it's, it's also related to free will, right? That you can choose between good and bad. Okay, and if very good, let's finish the point. So let's say if there was no reward and punishment, mm-hmm. if there was no reward and punishment, then what? 
what would right. we have? The, the things that we do, they don't have consequences or inconsequential, anything that we do. That's right. That's absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. I can't say it any better. You know? I can't say it any better. Like, there's no consequences. It's inconsequential. Like, essentially, our life only has purpose because success and failure is not guaranteed. If it was, then, like I said, there's no free will, but there's no purpose in life because we're just, we're just tracing along the lines that we're already there. We're not even tracing it. We're doing nothing. Thus, our actions matter. Our life has purpose because our actions are in our hands, thus, and therefore there's reactions to those actions. There's repercussions. And it's kind of a joy because if we didn't have that, our actions would, our actions would be meaningless. And the example that we give uh, is that a child, your child, when they act well, you give them the lollipop when they misbehave. You give them the little zapta, as they say in Yiddish. <laughs> no, we don't. But, uh, you know, a parent responds to the behavior of their child. Because a parent loves the child. God loves us. He wants us to have meaningful lives. Therefore, he responds to our actions. And by the way, he responds collectively as well, which is another curiosity of Jewish history, is that this idea of being part of a community, a unity of, of masses, and being treated as an element of a bigger picture. For the good and for the bad. You know, in Yom Kippur we get judged individually. Hopefully, no, hopefully not. We don't want to get <laughs> judged no, individually. You, I mean, you, you are inscribed or not, right? You, you individually true, are. True, true. But we try as much as we can to be, try, to be part of the collective. Because, because otherwise, otherwise, if we are scrutinized individually, most likely we will not succeed in passing the test. And when we're part of the community, the collective, well, then there's certain special powers that the Jewish people have collectively that we that we that we that we latch onto, and therefore we benefit from that. But there's the converse of that: is that listen, you know, uh, you know, obviously there's a very grave question if you have communal punishment. But it certainly exists in Jewish sources. And, and it absolutely exists in Jewish history. And people might point out that the vast majority of the Polish Jews that were almost entirely decimated in the Holocaust were very, very perhaps religious or observance, whatever, whatever word you want to use, very pious Jews. As opposed to the Jews, you know, the German Jews or the French Jews. Those were the Jews that were very, you know, that were very... Secular. You know, very, not, some would say secular, but anti-religious or... That whole era that existed at that time, uh, you know, the ones who wanted to assimilate all that. So they were. The, so if, if 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 the Holocaust is viewed, now this is obviously a very sensitive subject that we I think we can discuss, but we have to set aside designated time to discuss it in a sensitive way. But if the Holocaust is a fulfillment of what the Torah says, when the Torah describes Holocaust-like events, well, then maybe it should be relegated only to the uh, to the people that deserve it, so to speak. That's a good question. But we're told not like that. We're told that we're collectively judged positively, negatively, and it's obviously a very hard thing to absorb. Why should someone be judged and have to suffer for their neighbor's misdeeds? Well, you would expect, right? If there are ten, right? That's what Abraham, when he was pleading not to destroy the city, he says, "If there are hundred, if there are ten, yeah." So if there are ten good Jews in Germany, you would expect it to be saved, right? Huh. What are you saying? Well, there were no ten Jews. I would think that there were, but maybe we don't have that same flexibility. Maybe we have a, we're held to a higher standard. You're going to say, oh, 10 Jews. Remember, the city of stone, this is before the Torah. There's no Jews. 
No, not not Jews. Good Jews. Right. <laughs> no, not good Jews. Right. <laughs> but I'm saying well, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't related to the Jewish religion. Yeah. So maybe they have a lower bar. They all you need is a couple of pious people, and you're good to go. Maybe there's people have a much higher bar. Uh, it's a well, good question. Well, this is yeah whole discussion. So uh, yeah, so we need to have to settle some time. Let's let's quickly finish reading here because I don't want to go too much over time here. Uh, teach them to your children. We're on page two to discuss them while you sit in your home, while you walk on the way, when you retire, when you arise, and write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. In order to prolong your days and the days of your children upon the ground that Hashem has sworn to your ancestors to give them, like the days of the heaven and earth. By the way, when the Talmud says that there are many sources in the Torah that talk about resurrection of the dead, one of the sources is what we just read. In order, I'll read it again, see if you guys can pick it up here. In order to prolong your days and the days of your children upon the ground that Hashem has sworn to your ancestors to give them, like the days of the heaven and earth, or the earth. Where, where does it mention anything about dead people coming back to life? Does it mention anyone? This verse the Talmud used as proof that dead people come to life. Yeah, like days of the heaven and earth. But so I think. No, the, it's not the words that my, he uses. My mom, my mom is. <laughs> it's not the words that was, he uses. She was. She has big discussions in this letter with. Uh, I don't know who was the letter she wrote about people accusing him that he, would, he didn't believe of resurrection. Yeah, so... And then after some time, he had to write it into the 13 principles saying, yes, this is what I believe. But Yeah, there was a lot of controversy. Yes. Um, so it's not it's not clear whether he believed it from the, from the get-go. Oh, he clearly believed it. <laughs> um, it's interesting. No, no. And everyone agreed, even as the tractors, they, they, they... He was so... Maimonides was such an incredible figure and he's he was something so entirely different than what we had seen um and he was so beyond what people weren't used to it It was so novel so to speak that someone could do all of this you know that people like they some of them reacted very viscerally to it mm-hmm. in fact it was it was really terrible because uh in the in the early 13th century so Maimonides died in 1204 in 1230 or 1240 there was a a big Backlash against Maimonides, and they burned a bunch of his books. And then, at the same exact spot, there were twenty-four wagons full of Talmuds that were collected by the Gentiles and burned at the same spot. And all the Jews realized that 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 the Jews themselves kind of bizarrely burned Maimonides' books. You know, and at that very same location. The Gentiles burned 24 books at the Talmud. 24 wagons full. Which, by the way, you think of a wagon full. How many, how many copies of the Talmud would fit in a wagon? And how priceless was every single piece of the Talmud before printing presses? But that kind of shook the entire nation to its core. And people realized that, that it wasn't a coincidence that when they had, in such a public fashion, uh, went against the Rambam, uh, they were smacked back, kind of, so to speak, in the exact same location by having the, the Talmud burned. But either way, um, the verse here says, in order to prolong your days and days of your, of your children upon the ground that Hashem has sworn to your ancestors to give them. Which ground are we talking about? Which land are we talking about? Yeah. Land of Israel, that's right. Now, who did God swear to give the land to? To, to your ancestors. Yeah. The answers didn't get it. They're dead. 
the ancestors are all dead. Clearly, from this verse, is it, this is proof that the Torah believes in resurrection. It's one of the to- Torah proofs of resurrection. How do you like that? You like it, huh? I see a quizzical look, at least one quizzical look. <laughs> at least one. Well, no. The lambs were to give to them and their descendants. But uh, I'll bring you verses. We have, the Torah says, that God, God, tells, God tells Abram, I'll give it to you. Isaac and Jacob, they all independently got, blessed, got promises that they will get the land. So you can see him say, you could say, well, they means their children, you know. But it could have said, when Moses, here Moses is speaking. So Moses should have said, um, right, Moses is being quoted here uh, in the Torah. The Torah is really the one that's speaking. This is where the words come from, the Torah. But what it should have said is that upon the ground that Hashem has sworn to your answers to give to us. Answers are, de- are dead right now. So the idea of, of, of having kind of the, the meaning, the implied meaning being when I give it to you, I'll give it to your kids, that one shouldn't apply when they're already dead. So either way, that's one of the like about fifteen proofs that it's used. There's an enormous amount of proofs. This is just one of them. It's good to know. Okay, let's finish up here. And Hashem said to Moses, saying, "Speak to the children of Israel and say to them that they, should, that they are to make tzitzis on the corners of the garment throughout the generations." That's these things, by the way. These are the tzitzis, and they are. I, I have someone I know. I don't remember who. Some of them in the story that they met some guy on an airplane. These, these conversations always happen in the airplanes. Um, and the guy was saying, he, they were having some sort of theological discussion, and the, the Jew told him, I think it was a Jew and someone else, the Jew told him, like, like, we observe the Torah, the Bible, the, the original way. Like, we haven't changed anything. He's like, really? Where are your fringes? The guy pulls his hands in his pocket and says, here they are. <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, it's been, it's been, we have stories about the, the tzitzis, and we have, it's an uninterrupted, like, uninterrupted uh, tradition and mitzvah that the, we've had for Forever, essentially, since 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 the times of the uh, of Moses, Moses is the one who tells us. God tells Moses to tell us to wear tzitzis. We're wearing the same tzitzis today. So he was wearing tzitzis. Of course, they were wearing tzitzis. Yeah. yeah. How did they make them? How did they make everything? How did they make any wool? How did they make all the all the vestments of the temple? How did they make them? They spun wool the old-fashioned way. Now. Um, Isn't there a discrepancy on the colors? No, the tchelas. We, we didn't get the tchelas oh. yet. Chelos we don't have. That's right. Chelos we don't have. The the um, that's controversy. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and the thighs. Right. right that's the chelos. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Now there's a great story about the going to Vilna, the genius of Vilna. By the way, if your if your moniker is the genius, and you're Jewish, like if Jewish people collectively. If for th- hundreds of years I've labeled you as being a genius, that this was your name is. Uh, we're talking about another titanic figure in Jewish history in the 18th century. But there's a famous story of him when he's about to die, and he's holding his sisters and he's sobbing. And why is he sobbing? He's saying because in this world it's the world of mitzvahs. You have opportunities to do mitzvah. Once you're dead, you can't do a single mitzvah, nothing. And here, for a few kopecks, for a few shekels, right, for a few rubles. 
for a few dollars. You could buy yourself a mitzvah. And it's, it's, it's almost free. It's incredible. And now he, he realized he was about to die and he was just sobbing over the lost opportunity. Uh, and it's, it says this. What this means, I, don't want, I really don't want to go over time because you guys won't come back next time. So, um, <laughs> everyone's like, oh, we're good to go. And, but then, no. Just like, I'm a little tired. The rabbi has a way of going over time. That's why I know it. it's, 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 it's minus EV, as they say. Minus expected value when you go, when you go over time. And they are to place upon the tzitzis uh, of each corner a thread of tchela. So if you see people today, there are people today that have, there's two kinds of tchelas that people found. Tchelas is this blue dye made out of the blood of some exotic snail. Which, yeah, apparently. Yeah, so why would they use a non-kosher animal? Good question. You've asked that before. You're recycling your questions as granted. Good. I'm, not well, the only I'm, not the only, I'm not the only one recycling content. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the... Uh, so that, that's another example. I don't remember what the other... Oh, I mean, they were cutting their hair mixed, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, if that's the case, then why is it like companies like Eichlers, they sell... Who? Eichlers, yeah. They sell... Yeah, so there's, but there's, but which one is it? In the in the in the late 19th century, there was this Hasidic Rebbe that made it his life mission to find this animal. Problem is that we don't have no tradition what the animal was. All we have is descriptions of the animal. So the fact that you're that the descriptions that we have correlate to the animal that you found, that doesn't mean it's necessarily not. Necessarily, I say, hey, there's an animal that's small and white. It could be a rabbit. It could be a. It could be a cat. <laughs> Say, oh, I'm looking for a small white animal and I found a rabbit. But no, you're looking for a cat. Right? It's a weird analogy, but. Right? But that makes sense, right? Just because you fit the bill doesn't mean that that's actually the right thing. So they found another one. They found that now there's there's two. When you probably go to Eichel's, you can probably find two different kinds of chalas. Either way. Mine are all white because. Most people just wear just white. Oh, this is such a controversy. Oh, my goodness. I can talk for another two hours about this <laughs> right now. But it's a big question. Maybe we'll hold off on this. But it, I it's, it's like, it's like you know, peculiarities. Should you wear it now? Would you have anything to lose by wearing it or not? What are the characteristics? Is, is it, does it, does it, is, do these animals actually fall into the categories? Like, you know, which one's right, which one's wrong? My kids wear tzitzis. I usually at the age of three or even I earlier would give them, but I, you know, I don't put guns to their heads. Uh, I'd say, you know, if a kid don't, like doesn't wear tzitzis in the morning, like he's sweaty, whatever, I don't make a big deal about it. And for some reason, it doesn't sound right putting a uh, gun into a three-year-old. <laughs> maybe my putting what a gun into a three-year-old. Yeah, well, well, for the child. <laughs> The trauma of being told like no candy that that's equal to like the trauma of an adult being having done put to that. Yeah, you have candies if you don't put your your tzitzit. That's what I meant. I'm trying to talk. I'm talking to adults here. I'm trying to describe what power a parent could wield over their child. You know, by by closing the spigot of candy, spigot of sugar. Anyhow, let's finish here. And it says it's for you. You may wear it and remember the commandments of Hashem and perform them. And not explore after your eyes and after your, after your hearts with your eyes after which you will stray so that you may remember and perform a mistress that I, that, and be holy to your God. I am Hashem your God who has to move the land of Egypt to be a God to you. I am Hashem your God. It is true. With the video. How does Tzitzis remind us about all the mitzvahs? Good question. Maybe we'll answer it next time, guys. Lots of fun, everyone. I apologize.
I apologize greatly for going overtime. <laughs>